0: The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking the night of finale. Plus, we're joined by two legal experts who will explain what the show got right and wrong. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions@vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic, Matt zoller Sites.
2: Hey, Gazelle.
1: Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist, Jen Chaney. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jen. Hey, Jen. So... People really love that cat on the night of, huh? I love the cat. <laughs> I feel like that's like the majority of this. My social media feed was like
2: all about the cat. And uh, I'm a dog
3: person, and I really like the cat.
2: That's probably the best. I think that's probably the best uh, screen cat since the one at the end of uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's.
3: Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, what about Inside Lou and Davis? I love that cat also. Oh, Inside right. Lou and
2: Davis also has a great cat. We could do an entire cats that would be podcast. Great
1: cats on cats of television
3: The cats
2: of TV and <laughs> the, the, the yes, yes. There's not too many of them though because you can't get a cat to do a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> they just look at you and kind of, you know, inwardly roll their eyes.
1: Yeah. I I also never realized that we were being filmed all over New York quite so much. Like Yeah, that's just disconcerting. <laughs> and like crystal clear like resolution.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but I it, I don't know. It seems like it's probably well, it's, somewhat it, that's, accurate. That's
2: that's something that I actually I did a little bit of writing about that when I was at the Star Ledger uh, after 9/11 the number of surveillance cameras in in the tri-state area increased drastically oh. as you can imagine. And uh now uh, there's a point I believe I believe it's true that if you are out on the street anywhere in Manhattan you're on video. Mm-hmm. Like there's on you know, like there's little pockets here and there where you may not be, but in most cases if you're if you're on a sidewalk or a public street there's a camera on. You. Yeah. I I felt like the show's um, inability to really figure out how it felt about that and how it was going to use it was one of its major failings.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the finale and how seamlessly do you think it kind of brought its various threads together?
3: I mean, I felt like what they did early in the episode was just tick off all the, the usual suspects, for lack of a better way of putting it, the people that we thought were most likely to have done it. And they put them all on the stand and went after them one by one and really kind of knocked them out of contention as it turned out. Um, it's hard for me to talk about the show without talking about it in context of criminal justice since I watched the British series that it's based on. And both of these shows did a lot of 11th hour information reveals that changed everything. I but I thought, <laughs> and, I, and I mean, the, the stuff on the security camera being a great example of that. I thought the night I've handled it better than the British series did. Uh, and I thought there was a lot more kind of nuance in... The way they portrayed what went on, um, but as I as I promised you guys, the the kiss thing, I knew that was going to come back to haunt her. Yeah. I knew there was a reason that they put it in there. Although what she did by smuggling drugs into right. to Nas was far far worse. Um,
2: was that not in the original British? Uh... It it seems the drug like
1: smuggling it was. Part was not. Oh, the, the drugs was not. There was a was
3: romantic not. undertone to their relationship, um, but the drug smuggling part of it was not in there. No,
1: I was really upset by why the kiss happened and how they dealt with it in the finale because it felt like it was really used just to have John Stone come in as this savior figure just like he was in the beginning and to have these you know in the end these two white men are who saved the day and him and box and not that there's anything wrong with that but it just felt like what they did to lead to that didn't feel like good storytelling to me This is my issue.
2: This is my issue with the entire show. And it's like, there's so much about this show that is wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, the the performances, the look of it, the atmosphere of it. And there are many individual moments, individual scenes that I think are brilliant. But there's something fundamentally off about this entire show. And I think it got worse as it went along. I thought the first episode, I thought they really had a strong grip on what they were doing. Episodes two and three... Continued to hold my attention, but then it started to lose it a little bit for me. And the reason, like, all of the various problems that I have with the show fall under this umbrella of what you were talking about, Gazelle, which is there are articulation problems. Like, you know, who is Naz as a person? Who is he? Well, okay, yes, he's an opaque character. He's a mysterious character. That's fine. But there was a certain point after which I felt like he was... Like they had drawn the curtains on his soul, right, not to make any particular statement about human nature, the criminal justice system, or anything else, but to give themselves cover to to sort of pull plot twists out of their butts so they yeah. could go like, "Oh, I guess that could work. We don't really know anything about the guy and they did that with they did that in so many other areas too, and like Jen was talking about the eleventh hour revelation of things that I felt like should have come up sooner and and like And what I'm talking about here is context I'm talking about storytelling context and like this for me was a show that does really really difficult things with seeming effortlessness but but fumbles the basics and among the basics they fumble are how competent are these people who are involved in the case Mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about that with the experts as well but you know the prosecutors the defense team the cops often seem incompetent and if the show had established from the outset the people in the system are overworked, um, they're easily distracted, they've got too much on their plates or something, then I would have been able to accept that. But instead, like they alternate between portraying the district attorney, um, John Stone, uh, Box, um, you know, a lot of other people sort of swirling around the case as being incredibly competent, cool, tough, professional, experienced people. And then you got things like it seems like they wait until the trial is well underway to ask basic questions about who has a claim on the house. You know, right. things like right. that. And, right. and, like, in the matter of, like, okay, so this kid is uh, supposedly charged with stabbing a woman to death, like, you know, hitting her 21 times with the blade of a knife, and yet he has he has almost no blood on him.
1: Right. That was a big question I saw going around Twitter and stuff that i hoping our experts will be able to shed some light on. Yeah. Why wouldn't they bring that up? I yeah, don't know. and it's like,
2: why are, Why is the show not interested in this? Why yeah. are, It seems like, is it the people involved in the case who are not dealing with this until much later than they should? Or is it the show well, that's waiting? I mean, I think it's the waiting? show that's
3: waiting. I mean, I do think in the case of Chandra, who she established herself as being... You could see that she had some some skill as an attorney right. uh, and that she was a very smart and capable person. But she was also they did establish that she was inexperienced. Would she have made such major errors in judgment? I, I, I'm
1: not sure about that.
2: With that much but, at stake?
1: Yeah. I mean, that that um, seemed strange to me. And um, like, even if she was inexperienced, it felt like she was at least a level-headed person that was what she felt like she that's the characterization I took away from her was that she had a good head on her shoulders and even though she wasn't experienced she had good judgment and it just like completely went in the opposite direction she seemed like
2: an idiot a lot of the time yeah really I mean it was really bad it yeah. was really bad and her characterization I think of all the major characters was by far the weakest and I think that actress who plays her Amara Karan, deserves some kind of like hazardous duty pay or a medal or something because she really made she really really went the extra mile to try to make this character make sense even though i think on paper she didn't
1: you know i think one thing i struggled with is what type of show is this who is this show about (laughs) and it sometimes it felt like a procedural where you thought that it was going to be more of a who done it type of thing, right. and then other times it felt like a character study, and I think by the end, I realized, oh, this is a show about John Stone. I didn't realize it was so much about him, but he kind of gets the hero's narrative in the end, and it it felt and like given how much time they spent on his eczema and the cat, it's like, okay,
2: and this, his sex life he
1: yeah, and his sex life, like this is a show about him. A lot of the commentary around this show kind of praised it for you know it's. It's insights into the criminal justice system and kind of the social issues, political issues that it raises. But I just I didn't get a sense that it was handling any of those with nuance. Uh, see
2: here. And, and this is the crux of it for me is that to me, the key scene as far as evaluating the show critically is the scene in the copy shop when he's when he's looking through the photos. And he's I guess he's making a blueprint of the apartment. And the, and the employee at this copy shop says to him, what are you, uh, what are you doing? You're making stuff for Law and & Order. And Stone re- replies with what felt to me like a note of condescension. And it felt like an ex- sort of an extra dramatic commentary on an inferior form of television, i.e. Law & Order, when in fact what you're looking at here, when you, get to, when you get to the end of it, what you're looking at is a Law & Order episode shot through a charcoal gray filter stretched out to fill eight hours. Right. And it's like you shouldn't be dissing Law and Order if basically that's what you're doing. And and it reminded me of what the experience of watching AMC's The Killing, which likewise was, you know, as far as production values go, was absolutely aces. Like that was one of the best-looking, best-sounding series on the air at that time. So much so that I continued to watch it just as like a visceral bath, you know, like the way that I watch Boardwalk Empire even when I thought it was terrible, I would continue to watch it just because it looked and sounded so great. But underneath it all, that too was like, it was like a CBS procedural with all the kind of nonsensical, like, just because we said so plot twists and everything. But it's like, because it's drenched in rain and it's shot like a great neo-noir and everybody's brooding and smoking and stuff, you're supposed to think it's art.
3: I also felt like in the beginning of the finale, they had another kind of law and order moment where Box is sitting at the bar and those guys are sitting kind of down the bar from him and saying... I forget the exact dialogue, but something to the effect of, oh, they should make a show about a cop who doesn't give a shit, which is really what the British series was. And I felt like they put that in there to announce for those people who were watching with that in their minds, like that's not how this is going to quite play out. Because spoiler alert to people who care about watching criminal justice, like the box character in that show, he's ultimately shown to be completely corrupt, whereas box in the show is not at all. I mean, I think that Compared to the British show, they do a much much better job here. It still has a lot of flaws, but as you said earlier, Matt, I just I a lot of the detail was what really drew me in. I I was in an argument with a friend like last night before I came home and watched the finale about how much time they spent on the eczema, and and I was very <laughs> oh, pro spend as much time pro- on Johnny's eczema. eczema as you possibly can. <laughs> like for some reason, I was just really I don't know. I just loved the amount of detail that they put they put into pro, that, and uh, then when it came back
1: again, pro I was like, yay. <laughs> I I did I was anti-eczema but I, I didn't I liked I liked the sequence in the finale with him cuz he's such a good actor. He's like, yeah. "Okay, I'll watch you, you know, be at the top of your game John's and then a go in." He's
2: great. He's great. Like, should anybody be foolish enough to attempt a, a Columbo reboot? He's the guy. <laughs> yeah. He's totally the guy.
3: And I don't know if you guys thought this or if I was you know, this was wrong on my part, but by the end of the episode, I thought part of why his his condition flared up again was the stress. But I also wondered, like, had he brought the cat back into the apartment at that point? Mm. And was that part of it, too?
2: That's a good question, although I think given Richard Price's past track record of um, giving his characters physical afflictions, which also have kind of symbolic dimensions, I felt like it was mm. also like, this is sounds so frickin' corny, so bear with me. But, like, the eczema is this recurring condition that keeps flaring up like his conscience like his 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 idealism like he think he thinks he's made it go away but it keeps coming back and i think that's what's going on in that scene where he negotiates his own fee gradually downward with the family so that he can he can represent naz and uh and i think there's an element of that going on throughout the show and i feel like at the end this is a guy who has basically checked out or removed himself from the trial and i feel like the eczema flaring up is like in a way, it's like his research and idealism, which enables him to deliver that great closing statement, which arguably makes the difference and results in a hung jury as opposed to Naz, you know, going to jail for life. I'm going to be honest
4: with you. This isn't what I normally do. I mean, obviously, someone who looks like this doesn't make his living doing public speaking. I'm sorry you even have to look at this. What I normally do is uh, plea my clients out because 95% of the time they did what they were charged with. They sold that dope, they solicited that guy, they stole that iPhone. It's clear to me just looking at them. So I tell them, uh, don't be stupid, take the deal. The first time I uh, saw Nass, He was sitting alone in a holding cell at the 21st precinct. He'd just been arrested. I walked past him out of the station and then stopped. Turned around and went back. Why? Because I didn't see what I see in my other clients. And I still don't after all this time. What I see is what happens when you put a kid in Rikers and say, Okay, now survive that while we try you for something you didn't do.
3: The closing statement was really important, but I do have to say, in Chandra's defense, like she she planted a lot of reasonable doubt. Oh, that, definitely. That really set the foundation for for the jury to be Deadlocked, and of course, got no credit and got completely tossed under a bus, and her life is ruined. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and as much as I liked the closing statement, I th- the use of music towards the end of the show really bugged me because yeah. it did this kind of like overly sentimental, like, here's our hero coming in and you know, saving the day, and that kind of carried through to the end. And I just it kind of signaled to me what type of what the show was trying to say, which is. This is a pure-hearted savior who, in the end, is the one who who did the work in getting that hung jury, as opposed to Chandra. You know, right. they gave him that kind of...
2: Well, it was a Hail he, Mary He's like, passed. she did all
1: the work, and then he yeah. got all the credit.
2: Like, yeah. Which I suppose makes it very realistic.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think maybe one of the better takeaways is, you know, Nas is left prison a guiltier man than he was when he entered prison and you know I saw people talking about that a lot but I just feel like all the time that it spent in you know showing us how prison can change innocent people and kind of ruin their lives it just felt to me when we were watching all that it was really used as narrative convenience to plant doubt in our minds that maybe he did do it I don't feel like it was it made enough of a commentary about the prison system because it had this ulterior motive.
2: Mm, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I can see that.
1: That's just how I felt. I don't know. I think a lot of people really like this show. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think in another year, I think if we were 5 if 10 years ago or even 5 years ago, this would this would be one of the year's top shows despite all of the problems. Yeah. You know, and like to me this is like the fact that we can have this kind of a nitpicky discussion about a show that is that means well and does have many excellent aspects like to me that just indicates how high the level of quality of the best scripted shows has become
1: and we've also seen you know documentary series about the criminal justice system that mm. i think are way more incisive so it feels a little like i i don't know like what are we getting out of this when you have something like making a murderer
2: yeah you know? the O.J. simpson documentary yeah
1: I did at least feel that the last episode of the night of was the most entertaining one since the pilot. <laughs> like even mm-hmm. even if I didn't love how they tied everything up, I was consistently engaged throughout it in a way that I wasn't in episodes two through seven. Mm-hmm. So,
2: I I did like there were a number of really wonderful individual scenes mm-hmm. in there, and I thought that closing shot was excellent, and I loved the scene yeah. where Freddie is talking to Naz in prison and where he finally solves the riddle of why did he take him under his wing in the first place. And he says, you know, basically because everybody you meet in prison claims to be innocent and they aren't, but I feel like you were, and that makes you, in his words, a unicorn. And that was a really nice scene and, and further proof that M- Michael Kenneth Williams can can sell pretty much anything as an mm, actor. Yeah. I mean, like, that's a, that's a scene where, like, in the hands of a lesser actor, it might have been really cornball, like, but totally. he, he completely dries that out, you know, so it feels like something a person would actually say. Mm -hmm. Man, these dudes in here,
4: upstate, places I've been, I mean, whether they in here for selling drugs or murder, they all got one thing in common. You ask them, every last one say they're innocent. But they all got that stink about them every moron a millionaire and lions stink but you, you smell like innocence you're the real deal Niles. that makes you one of a kind and the fact that you under my wing it's like Like I got something nobody else got. It's like, like I got a unicorn. (laughs) So why would I not take care of you? What kind of a cold individual do you think I am? Yeah.
3: Yeah, And I also thought, and I'm not going to remember the names, so maybe you guys can help me. But the, um, the attorney that was really uh chandra's boss who had been on the case initially uh and then left the case there was that scene between the two of them where at first it seemed like she was very sympathetic uh but then she's kind of like you know i don't have time and by the way clear at your desk Uh, and i thought i thought as (laughs) as awful as it was that felt that felt like a pretty authentic potential um Mm -hmm. conversation that would have actually happened
2: yeah yeah the sense of fatality of of um Things being a fait accompli was also another aspect of the show yeah. that I liked. Where it's like, even if people understand why people did things and they're sympathetic, they still are merciless mm-hmm. in how they deal with them. To me, the the there's a lot of really good actors on this show, but I think my favorite is Jeanie Berlin.
3: And just to clarify for people, we're talking about the woman who plays Helen Weiss, who's the prosecutor. Um, and I would watch an entire show about her and the She's way the she greatest
1: that that scene with her. Uh, questioning
3: Naz the
2: forensics Naz the, oh oh I thought you were gonna stand. mention a different one. Oh
1: the forensics one that one's really good. Oh in the finale?
2: Or? No yeah no the one before oh, that the but one the before. one where she questions Naz and the it's finale so was good. great. Yeah. But I was going to mention the one where the with the with the celebrity forensics expert who's written the books. Yeah. Like that scene I've actually watched that scene probably four times. You know, just because it's such a beautiful little short film in and of mm-hmm. itself. And you get and, and, and I love there's like an undertone of strategic flirtatiousness and they're both trying to be really charming and but the way that she sets she lays traps for him and then springs them is just great.
0: The knife you described as missing from its set. Do you know when it was bought?
5: No, but I know it couldn't have been later than two thousand eight since that's when that model was discontinued.
0: I bought my husband an electric drill with an array of two dozen drill bits in 2008. Admittedly not the most romantic birthday gift, but he's a happy putter.
6: So am I, I'd find it romantic.
0: My point is- I think we already know. Dr. Katz, we've both been doing what we do for a long time and it's put us in courtrooms for too many days. But as a result, we know the rules of the court and one of them is you answer the questions I ask, not ones I don't. Sure. Okay. After six years, how many of those 24 drill bits do you think are still in their case? None of them. None of them. My husband has lost them all. did I know what you should get him for Christmas. He doesn't deserve it. Okay. Now you can answer the question I haven't asked, because you know what it is
5: the missing fourth knife
2: could have been lost or chewed up in a garbage disposal or thrown out at some point in time somebody should just cast the two of them as like a couple <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> have them have them playing like a couple of college professors who are really dripping sarcasm or something yeah but yeah they're great and i and i also love how unglamorous almost all of the characters on this show were like they were filled the show's filled with faces of people that you might see on the bus or in the deli, you know? Mm-hmm. Like like you don't you don't see a cast like this very often, like especially on the networks. This is one area where cable totally blows away the broadcast networks because on the broadcast networks, particularly on Fox and NBC, you see characters like are routinely cast 10 to 15 years younger than they would be if their characters existed in real life and they and they all look like they're catalog models. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that here. You know, like, Turturro, um looks like a real guy. I mean, Jeannie Berlin, they all they all seem real. Like, Michael Kenneth Williams seems like a real guy. Like, like you know, they're all just lived in. They just feel really lived in. Yeah. And it adds so much.
1: We're going to continue talking about The Night Of, but we're going to have a couple legal experts join us to break down how accurate The Night Of was. So we're very excited to have with us today former criminal prosecutor Laura Gwyn and Howard Wasserman, professor of law at Florida International University. And they're going to help us answer some questions about the criminal justice system, how it works, and how the NIDA have presented it. Howard and Laura, thank you so much for being with us.
5: Hi, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Just
1: to start, what was it like watching this show for you? I generally
6: dislike and don't watch uh, legal dramas uh, because I can't get past how badly they're presenting the criminal justice system. Um, So I kind of went into it with, I went into it from the beginning with that uh, that admitted bias to it.
5: Like Howard, I don't watch regular programming, criminal justice shows, police, like Law and Order and things like that, because it makes me crazy that they can uh solve a case in in an hour uh, but <laughs> but you know a series like this is 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 presented uh differently and and i actually i i enjoyed it there were some things that made me crazy um in terms of how they presented evidence and things they did in the courtroom but but otherwise i I enjoyed it one thing that really made me crazy was when Helen gives her opening statement. Uh, she has as much emotion and inflection as if she's going to Starbucks and ordering her morning latte. Um, <laughs> you know, her, if, if she doesn't care about the victim, which is how it came across to me, then why should the jury care about the victim? You know, this is your chance to sell your case to the jury. And I just thought she did a very poor job. And whether that was directing or script or just, you know, how she thought it should go, I don't, I don't know. And then the other thing that I thought was, um, that really drove me nuts, was many times when she was questioning a witness, she would be very casually leaning on the edge of the witness (laughs) box. Um, And there are few places in our society anymore that are formal, but a courtroom is formal. And doing that um, takes away a lot of the formality. And I think most judges are not going to let you get that close to a witness. And if I could just say one final example of that. When she's questioning Nas, who, as the prosecutor, she's trying to sell to the jury as a violent person, and she's that close to him, what message is she sending to the jury? Mm. She's certainly not sending, he's a violent person, because I'm not afraid of him. Look how close I'm willing to get to him. And being That's in a courtroom, part of it is theatrics, part of it is. Body language, part of it is what juries see, not just what they hear.
6: The one thing I I liked about the show quite a bit is that it presented what I think is a real-life situation of you saw a whole bunch of events that, when we look back on them, can be ambiguous. They can be spun by either side to either suggest innocent or innocuous behavior or guilty behavior in most cases really are about taking things that we have a sense happen and then trying to make arguments off of those facts as to which version of events the prosecutors or the defenses is is, is more convincing and and better matches reality. The thing that, that just kind of drove me nuts was, you know, a lot of the and this is typical of TV, is how the question and answer of, of, of the witnesses went, where the lawyers are putting words in their mouth and the lawyers are giving speeches rather than let, letting the, the witnesses actually answer. There were a whole bunch of really strange evidence that was presented that would never come in uh, in a real case. The, the one that, that really jumped out at me was the fights he was in at school. Um, would not come in under any uh, under any rules of evidence, I can imagine, because there, there's a general prohibition on using either character evidence, he's a violent person, or he's acted violently in the past to get the jury to believe that he acted violently at the time in question.
5: I totally agree with you, Howard. And my daughter and I watched it last night, and that was One point I brought up with her was there's no way you get that propensity evidence in, and especially the pushing down the steps was, what, five or six years before uh, when he was a child. Um, And then the other piece of evidence was they put on his friend Amir to talk about um, his drug dealing. Uh, And my daughter said to me, well, why isn't that relevant? Because he had amphetamines in his system. Um, and so we had a, a discussion about that, about, no, it's not relevant. Whether he sold drugs or not has nothing to do with whether or not he murdered. The fact that he had amphetamines in a system speaks for itself and has nothing to do with did he deal drugs or did he do bad things. So, Howard, you're absolutely right. Those were two things that uh, were on appeal. You know, the case would get reversed for the admission of those two um, pieces of evidence, I think.
6: And I think both sides, both sides did it because the... Um the hearse driver, you know, the stuff about him uh, abusing his wife and having restraining orders against him, same, same thing. You can't do it with a, with a witness either.
2: Can I can I ask a general question about the investigation of the case? Um, and and this is just I'm a layperson. All I know, really, all I know about the law is what I've seen on television. So I have no way of judging if this stuff is is in any any way accurate. But it bothered me as a viewer that it seemed like it took a fairly long time. They got fairly deep into the trial before they were asking questions like, um, who stands to benefit from uh, from Andrea's murder. Like, you know, who owns the house? Who has a claim on the house? Are there any uh, financial irregularities that could suggest a second suspect? Things of that nature. And also, um, at the very end, like the very last few minutes of the last episode, we see Box, like, really doing due diligence going over those phone records. And And I was asking myself, isn't that something he should have done earlier? And. I, I mean, these a lot of times these people look like they either don't know what they're doing or they are so distracted that they can't do their job. And I'm wondering, is that the point of showing that? Is that realistic? You know, what do you make of all this, like in terms of the presentation of it?
1: Right. And just to add, you know, one thing along those lines that bothered me was how Box, in the beginning of the finale, is looking over the tapes again and notices the victim looking over her shoulder and why that wasn't noticed by the defense at all, or any you know why why these kinds of details came into play in the eleventh hour.
5: Well, you know hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, people like Box, I, I think one thing that they didn't show was that this surely was not the only murder case that he was working. Um, you know th- these detectives are, and, and I'm not making excuses for them, but they are constrained by how much time they have. Uh, and what effort, you know, what, what resources they have to put into uh, a, an investigation. And certainly, you know, murder investigations are high priority. Most of the detectives that I worked with during my career were, were very dedicated uh, and, and were looking to make sure that the person that they arrested was the right person. But nevertheless, you know, they looked at this case in the in, in, in the series as... Look, you know, we've got DNA. We've got eyewitnesses to put them on the scene. We've got what appears to be the murder weapon. Um, I think there was where they had a semen. I think they said you know they had a couple of other things. And and so to them it looks like you know this is an open and shut case. What what more do we really need to do? I need to move on to other cases that require my attention.
6: From the defense's standpoint, the timeline was presented really badly. I mean, all of the investigative work that they were doing with finding out the details about the house and the stepfather and and all that yeah it did you know that was already like all the way into the trial and i know that that stone and and chandra were presented as sort of being low rent inexperienced uh, lawyers. But basic competency is you you couldn't even start trial unless you have dug into all that just because you wouldn't even know what questions to ask. The, the, inter- the thing I thought was interesting last night um, was the show made a big deal out of the prosecutor's decision to continue with the trial even after they uncovered this evidence about the financial advisor the show presents that as being the ethically questionable decision and i actually don't think that was the case i think that decision was justified there really was more evidence more evidence against nas than there was against the other guy who really the evidence against him was about as strong as it was against the stepfather or against Dwayne Reed. The bigger ethical problem that the show glosses over was once they found the evidence suggesting any link to the financial advisor ex-boyfriend, they were under an obligation to disclose that to the defense. The show really underplayed that, I think.
5: I agree with you. I was very disturbed by the fact that when she got that information, that she did not give it to the defense. I Initially, I thought, well, when, when does she have to give it? Because I thought the trial was over. I didn't realize initially that they had not yet given their, their closings. Um, and so from that point of view, I think even if they had given their closings and they were waiting, she still would have had to tell them at that point. And I think ultimately you could see that she was disturbed because during her closing... She seems to falter, and then when mm-hmm. Box gets up and, and walks out, you can see that she is—I'm I'm not sure what the word I want, but— She but seemed, very, she seemed rattled. There you go. That I mean, that's a good word, and I think it was because she realizes that, that Box was disgusted with her for standing up and making this argument when she knew darn well that there was another good suspect, and I think at that point she— almost looks within herself and realizes that, you know, she can't really get up there and and, and, and say that. Um, I think the reason why, why she decides they're not going to re-prosecute uh, is because she has this information, and maybe she knows in her heart, sometimes you just feel it, that it's the wrong person, even with the evidence there. Sometimes you just feel that it's not the right person.
2: There's a show on Sundance right now called Rectify, which is about a, a- uh, an accused rapist murderer who who uh, is uh, gets out of prison on a technicality and uh... there's all these forces that are trying to get him back in prison and one of the things they go into is this prosecutor uh... and uh, this um... senator who basically don't want his verdict to be overturned they don't want it to be challenged because they see it as a threat to basically the uh... the authority of the state and and there's been a lot of coverage in the last five to ten years uh, particularly because of the innocence project about prosecutors sticking to their story no matter what, like even when there's evidence that that there might have been another suspect or simply that the person who was convicted of crime didn't actually do it. And I'm looking at this ending of the night of, and I'm thinking, how often does this happen in the real world in a case like this high profile where somebody's career really is at stake, to have a uh, district attorney just in literally in the last minutes of their (laughs) their, uh, closing argument say, you know what? maybe this isn't the guy. You see her being rattled by Box leaving the room. You see she seems guilty. She seems kind of ashamed of herself. Is this something that happens more often than we know? Is it something that occasionally happens? Would we ever hear about it if it did happen? I'm I'm just fascinated by this whole element.
6: I think when a prosecutor is not certain at that level, there would be two moves. One would be to drop the charges. If you're really sure, then you drop the charges because you want to give the 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 defendant the accused the benefit of that more certain resolution that it's not just that oh the jury was hung and we didn't re prosecute but that makes it really hard for him to get on with his life as opposed to yeah we brought charges but we realized the evidence pointed someplace else so we dropped the charges so that gives the defend in that much more closure and then the other thing is prosecutors play this very odd role they they they're wearing two hats at the same time and it can be very difficult to do and one of them is they are supposed to be the sir thomas more man of man for all seasons, Mm. seeking to do justice And at the same time, they're also an advocate for the state in what is supposed to be an adversarial process in which the defendant is himself represented. Uh, And so one way of thinking about it is, and I think is justified in a case like this, is, you know, I'm going to go ahead with this prosecution because this is where I think the strongest evidence is. I will make sure that all the evidence going the other direction Including about this new possible suspect, is in the defense's hands, and the defense attorney, as the advocate for the defendant, will put on the case and we see where the, where the jury comes out. Both of those are legitimate things for the prosecution to do, depending on the, the type of, of case you have. Um, the middle ground that the show struck, I think, in some ways, is the worst of all possible worlds.
3: Well, I have a procedural question. Like Matt, I am a lay person. Uh, I got my law degree from the Grinder School of TV Law, so I don't know <laughs> <laughs> anything real when it comes to the law. But, um, you know, when the jury comes back and they're, they're split, it's a hung jury, and the judge reluctantly says, okay, this is going to be a mistrial, and turns to the prosecution and says, are you going to retry this case? And Helen Weiss makes the decision at that moment, as you said, because, uh, you know... Something is telling her maybe that this is the wrong thing to do to, to keep trying Nas. But would they just be able to make that decision in that moment in the courtroom? It seemed to me that that would have been something that would have... There would have been some discussion and that would have maybe been, been resolved at a later time.
0: The,
5: very unlikely. Uh, there were two things that happened. Uh, the judge said to the uh, foreman, so what was the count? Uh, you don't you should, I've never seen that in a courtroom. The judge doesn't want to know the count. Nobody wants to know the count. Well... The prosecutor and the defense want to know the count, but as a matter of public record, uh, I've never heard a judge ask that. But to go back to your question, uh, no, on a high-profile case like that, usually the judge wouldn't ask at that time, are you going to retry it? Because he knows that she's got to go back and talk with the higher-ups, and they're going to conference the case. They're going to look at what else could be done. Should anything else be done? They would talk about... um, uh, the, the the other suspects uh, and whether or not, how much investigative work should we do in terms of those other suspects? What should we do? You know, there, w- there would be a period of time. The judge might say, okay, let me know in a week, two weeks, a month, or he might say, how much time do you need? She seemed to be a pretty senior attorney. But again, I think in a high-profile case like this was, um, she would not make that decision on her own, but would make the decision uh, in concert with her supervisors.
6: The judge also basically tried to bully the jury into going back into <laughs> deliberation,
5: which, which he can't do. The judge is... Oh, it happens allowed. all the time. That happens all the time. In
6: But <laughs> in that blatant, like, I don't accept that you're deadlocked, I mean, the judge is supposed to sort of prod them, remind them of their obligation to... To discuss and deli- and deliberate and to uh, get a sense of of where they are, so the judge can kind of prod them a little bit. But that seemed to that seemed to cross the line a little bit.
5: That so was more overt than what most <laughs> judges do. But yeah. the truth is, they do kind of bully them into you know they give what's called an Allen charge and they say, well. You know, you've got to go back and you guys have to listen to each other and, you know, change your mind if you think the other person. I mean, it is a form, <laughs> a, a little bit of a form of bullying, especially. You know, I mean, I've had, ca- you know, you have cases where a jury's out, let's say, for 10 hours over two days and it was a week long trial and they come in and they look all worn down and they're like, we can't reach a decision. And then, you know, the judge tells them, no, you got to go back and reads in the Allen charge. And, and an hour later, they, they come out and they have a verdict, and it's like, whoa, it's a miracle.
2: Um, <laughs> but,
5: but, but you know, I, I mean, to some extent, it is a little bit of a form of bullying where, you, where you're basically saying to the jury, no, you're not going anywhere until you make a decision. That's exactly what um. it
2: seemed like. like. It actually seemed like it was like, <laughs> the, I really honestly thought that he was going to turn to the jury and say, you're going to go back in there, and you're not coming out until you have a verdict.
1: <laughs> yeah. To go back just a little bit earlier in the finale, you know, we see chandra put nas on the stand and it's clear we're supposed to think this is a terrible decision under any circumstances in a case like this would it have made sense to put him on the stand was that a completely crazy thought that she had or was that
2: happens in the movies all the time like there's almost every like like murder sort of trial story there's a point where it's like we should put them on we should put them on the stand we should put the accused on the stand how often does this happen in life, as opposed to how often it happens in the movies?
5: Hardly ever. Quite frankly, <laughs> you know, most of the time they're guilty, and the ju- the the defense attorney's not going to put him on and and let the prosecutor have at him, especially if he's got you know prior convictions or you know or or other stuff in his background. There were a lot of times as a prosecutor where. You look at the jury and, you know, if the defense is somebody else did it, you think that jury's, you know, for the, ju- for the jury to believe that maybe somebody else did it, I think that they want to hear the defendant get up there and say, I didn't do it, because then they can plausibly believe that, well, maybe somebody else did. And I know Howard's going to say, and he's right, the the judge is going to instruct the jury the fact that the defendant did not testify cannot be considered by you. You cannot hold it against him or consider it in any other way. But the truth is we're all human beings. And uh, juries try to abide by, by the um, instructions, but I think most people would find it very hard that if you're innocent of a murder, that you've been wrongfully accused, I think they, would f- they find it hard not to have that in the back of their mind. Why didn't he get up and say that he didn't do it?
6: One of the things that was interesting was when John and, and Chandra are debating whether or not to have him testify, uh, John makes the argument that if he takes the stand, the jury is going to demand that he prove his innocence. So they're going to be inherently suspicious of his testimony, whereas if he doesn't take the stand, he's, he's cloaked by the presumption of innocence and that was the the view that John put forward whereas i think the more common view is what Laura just described that if you really are innocent why aren't you getting up and testifying and actually explaining your side of the story so it was a very two very different perspectives on why the accused should or should not testify I didn't think it was a bad decision because, again, what you had in the case were a lot of facts that were kind of ambiguous. That the defendant could explain why he left, let let her get in the car, and you know why he rushed out and and why he asked the the question that he did. Um, I think the problem was that Chandra left too much of that to be gotten into on cross examination mm-hmm. where the prosecutor could kind of wear him down rather than presenting herself the good and the bad from his story and trying to make the best version of it um for the for the jury. Um so I don't think the decision was terrible it was really poorly executed.
1: Well speaking of that, you know a lot of people on Twitter have been wondering, you know, why the defense didn't do certain things. And one of the questions that came up a lot was the fact that Nas wasn't covered in blood that night. Yes.
3: And it
1: didn't huge. come up in the trial. Did that seem very unusual to you that the, the defense wouldn't bring that up?
5: I would hammer that if I was a defense attorney. That was the first thing that I noticed when I was watching it. I'm like, it it seems like such an open and shut case, but the the... the the room looks like a jackson pollock uh painting you know it's got <laughs> yeah. so much i mean think about it yeah. it did you know there's yeah. got so much yeah. blood everywhere and he's got no blood on him and the inhaler has no blood and yeah i mean i i thought those were uh very very glaring reasonable doubt uh pieces of evidence that should have been hammered uh by the defense
1: is there anything else that you think the show, you know, either got really right or really wrong or anything else that kind of sticks out to you? I liked
5: the way that it showed the sort of coziness, the insularity in some ways of the criminal justice system. If you think about the judges would um, uh, speak to Stone and, and and they would call him John. And in particular, the judge who did the arraignment said, John, is that a relative or or was it right place, right time? And it shows how well these people know each other, um, and that's very true in the criminal justice system. It's a small community. There are prosecutors, and there are people who do criminal defense work. You don't too often get an an Allison. What was it, Allison Crow? You don't too often get somebody like that defending these cases, um, and that's something that people don't really realize. It is a small community. People know each other well. Um, remember when John goes in and sees Helen, she says, oh, you know, how, how was the foot? How are the, how's your son doing? Something like that. These people know each other.
6: I really liked the, the Rikers Island stuff um, because I think it really drove home the problem of pretrial detention and the effect that that has on the individuals who go in there um, where it is essentially prison even though they haven't been convicted of anything yet and they are still innocent in the eyes of the law and the effect that that has on them and just on their ability to defend themselves and to help with their own defense and to be accessible to their to the to their lawyers that is really something that we're the discussions that we're seeing more and more of and Rikers is an extreme example of that um, and I think think that that depiction and how that is, is sort of off to the side of the, of the criminal justice system uh, was a really important thing to see. Um, the thing that I did not like and that, you know, a little bit sours me on the show is, and you guys talked about this last week, is the depiction of Chandra and the depiction of women lawyers generally. I think it fell into those really bad traps of depiction of women professionals and the male professional always being the one to ride to the rescue. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. So you both said that you don't watch legal shows very often after watching The Night Of. Will that change your mind? Do you think you would be more inclined to watch legal shows going forward or not so much?
5: Still not so much. I mean, I I would watch series again, uh, Better Call Saul,
3: which is not really a legal...
5: (laughs) <laughs> but, but it's an awesome show. It is um,
6: Better, Call, Better Call Saul is is wonderful, but I, I agree. I don't consider that a legal show, or it's or Saul is such is such farce that I can I can laugh along with it. He's not taking himself absolutely. too seriously.
5: Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I, I mean I still wouldn't watch. You know, Law and Order, or is even CSI. I don't even know if that's on the show on the program anymore. Um, but you know, I mean, if there was another series like this. Uh, my, my daughter series. tends to tell me what's the good stuff, and and she's the one who turned me on to this. So if there was another one uh, that she said, "Oh, you got to watch this," then then certainly I would. And I, I haven't watched Rectify, but I may very well go back and uh, and watch that.
2: That one's interesting because a lot of the issues that you two have talked about today come up on that show. And another one I was going to mention was even though it's obviously based on a real case, but did either of you watch The People versus O.J. Simpson, the miniseries? Oh God, no! <laughs>
5: <The miniseries>, no. <laughs> I was I was trying a murder case in the middle of the O.J. Simpson trial, and it was a uh, very early on DNA, and I had DNA in my case, and, and I knew how badly the O.J. case was going, and I just kept going, God, please let me get to my DNA before they do. Please let me get
0: to my DNA before they do.
5: And I did get to my DNA before they did, thank God. Um, so.
1: Well, Howard and Laura, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Thanks to Rob Jacob springer at KUOW for engineering in Seattle. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant.
2: I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt zoller
1: And I'm Jen
3: Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at Chaney J. Thanks for listening.